Hello there, everyone. Welcome to Digital Nomad Mastery, the podcast and the video cast where we teach you how to make money while traveling the world. And I have my good friend on the show today. His name is Michael McCarthy, and I actually know him from Vancouver, BC, Canada, where we're both from. We actually put on a few different workshops together about travel writing and travel blogging. I cover the travel blogging, Michael covered the travel writing, and we were able to inspire about 20 people in each workshop to uh, you know, start up the travel blogs, to get into some uh, publications, and really to travel differently. And uh, Michael is, in, uh, is a specialist in the area of transformative travel. And if you're not familiar with the term, well, stay tuned. You're going to be finding out a lot more about transformative travel, how you can give back and impact the local communities that you're visiting. I'm over here in Bogota, Colombia. And apologies if the internet is a little bit choppy. Uh, but you know, life is a digital nomad means you're never going to have perfect internet. Uh, so I have the pleasure of introducing Michael on the show. Michael is uh, you know, a veteran travel writer. He's uh, been published on most of the major publications in Canada, US, and beyond. Um, you know, uh, he, he's traveled uh, all over the world on press trips uh, as a journalist, as a travel writer. And he's also a published author, having published uh, over 10 over 10 different travel right, uh, travel books, and that's amazing. I have one book, and that was hard enough, so the fact that Michael's done over 10 is incredible. Uh, so uh, we're going to be finding out a lot more about Michael today. Uh, Michael, um, tell us more about yourself uh, for the sake of the listeners and viewers who are watching today. Hey, Ricky, good to see you again, especially via the magic of uh, video here. Technology is an amazing uh, can't keep track of you, Ricky. Last time it was Venezuela, and now you're in Colombia. It's hard to—you're a hard guy to track down. So, okay, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I'll give you the full nine yards, the whole treatment here. Uh, recently, I, I, I discovered, or I, I came to the conclusion, the realization that um, I've actually been traveling my whole life. It's—it's it's only the last twenty years that I've been a travel writer. But uh, in working with uh, your good friend, business coach, life coach, uh, Kevin Hewn, he convinced me that I wasn't really a travel writer, that I've been traveling my whole life. And what he basically says is that uh, I'm a change agent, whatever that means. Uh, I help people uh, change for the better. And it's not just travel writing that I've been doing. I've been actually uh, traveling for over 50 years now. So um, because it's relevant to what we're going to talk about, transformative travel, I'll start from the beginning by saying that uh, my first travels were about uh, age 14. Uh, I started hitchhiking. I lived in Montreal in a little town outside of Montreal. There's no bus service. So one day I saw somebody on the highway stick out his thumb and I watched and somebody picked him up and gave him a ride. And I said, oh, uh, you, can get a, you can get a lift into town doing that. So I started hitchhiking when I was about 14. Later on in my teens, uh, 16, 18, um, well, actually, <laughs> I ran away from home as a teenager uh, one time. I ended up in, in Los Angeles, a long way from uh, Montreal. And uh, on that trip, I took a lot of Greyhound buses. And then uh, a bit older, I started hitchhiking across Canada. Um, many, many times hitchhiked across Canada. And uh, hopping freights and, uh, and, and living like my hero, Jack Kerouac, on the road. And uh, that's basically how I got started, which is kind of comical now, because when I think about it, uh, Sleeping in ditches and fields uh, <laughs> is not the way to go, uh, but you got to get started uh, somewhere. I think my first uh, airplane trip, uh, international trip, was to Hawaii. It, was, it must have been in my late 20s. I had a job, saved up all this money. You get your two-week vacation and go with your girlfriend to the beach. And I didn't know any better. You know, I mean, well, what is there to do? I mean, you, you go to the beach. Um, you know, you, you go to restaurants. Uh, I, I think in Hawaii, I even went to the zoo. 
Imagine going to Hawaii to go to the zoo. But, you know, I didn't know any better. So uh, uh, that's basically my first trip. And it wasn't until about 20 years ago that I really focused in on uh, travel. Um, you alluded to my journalism career. I, w I started the radio, then I got into newspapers. And uh, I might refer back actually to the newspaper I started back in the 1990s because it really was uh, transformative, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, and so I was working for newspapers and a friend of mine was a uh, member of SATW, Society of American Travel Writers. And he told me that if you had a number of uh, stories written in the paper or TV or radio spots that you could uh, become a member of this organization and get invitations to go on press trips. So it took me a long time to acquire a, enough uh, stories published in print to become a member of SATW. Uh, but I did, and then I started getting all these invitations all around the world. So as of today, I think I've been to 41 countries, uh, been on several hundred trips around the world. Um, I would say mostly to the United States, of course. As a matter of fact, I lived in the United States for almost a decade. And uh, while I was living in Northern California, for instance, um, I would go to play hockey in San Francisco twice a week. I didn't live in San Francisco. I would I would drive there and... and uh, visit and so uh, twice a week for seven years if you do the math that adds up to well over 700 times that i've been to san francisco and you know i'm not a resident but every time i went i would go check out a different part of san francisco my favorite city in the whole world so i've been all over california but uh, you know i've been to uh, asia quite a few times uh, the caribbean south america south seas uh, living in Vancouver, I've never really got too many invitations to go to Europe, unfortunately. Never been to Africa. But um, these days, as of today, I'm a bit grounded. I've decided to stop traveling constantly and stay home for a while and, and produce uh, some websites, documentaries, write some books, get caught up so that uh, my main focus going forward will be 100% on what I call uh, transformative travel. Awesome. Uh, thank you for sharing the backstory there of how you got into, uh, you know, journalism, et cetera. So um, before we cover uh, transformative travel, I would love to cover the area of your writing career. I mean, it's amazing. You've been published in so many publications and so many different media outlets, everything from, uh, you know, like I said, radio and print. Uh, walk us through how you got into that. Um, uh, you know, um, did you get a, a degree in it or did you just stumble across it or how did you actually start uh, your travel writing career? Well, to get to travel writing, first of all, I learned journalism, and that's really important to what I'm going to talk about uh, in a few minutes' time about transformation, because I transformed myself. Uh, I always wanted to be a writer ever since I was a kid. I think in kindergarten, after signing up for school, my mother walked me down to the library, and I could not believe what I saw, an entire room, an entire room full of books, nothing but books in it. I couldn't believe there was that many books in the world. And I always wanted uh, to, to be a writer. I think in the first year of school, grade one, uh, I read the entire Hardy Boys series, all 42 books at the time in, in one month, 42 novels to read as, as a five-year-old. <clears throat> and so uh, I always wanted to be a writer. <clears throat> Pardon me. But I could never figure out how to do it. These days, they have community colleges, schools, uh, all sorts of ways that you can learn journalism. You can learn print broadcast, uh, journalism, uh, it's not something that I would recommend for most people because the number of uh, media outlets is rapidly diminishing. Uh, to get a job for a company or a corporation, uh, the, the newspapers are, are going bankrupt. Uh, radio stations don't pay any money. But anyway, um, I did what all writers should do that 
which they never really want to do is, is I did a, an awful lot of horrible manual labor. Uh, just to, any old job I could get when I, 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 I took one year of university as a teenager and it was a complete waste of time. So I ended up uh, sailing to sea, working on the railroad, doing manual labor, all sorts of horrible stuff. And for a number of years, I drove a truck. I worked for the post office. And then by the time I was 30, I basically said, I can't do this anymore. Um, I think part of the reason for that was uh, I got fired from every job I ever had. Uh, every boss that I ever worked for said, you're too smart. You're an egghead. You know, you're a brain. We don't want your type around here. So I used to get fired from all these truck driving jobs for basically being too clever. And uh, I ended up at the end of the line where it was driving taxi. That was the bottom for me. Uh, I really hated driving taxi, having strange people drunk in the back of your cab all night uh, and working for less than minimum wage. And I had a girlfriend at the time who said, you know, you're a really great storyteller. There's an ad in the paper here that says you can borrow this money <clears throat> and learn how to be uh, a radio broadcaster. So I actually did. I borrowed the money <clears throat> and I took the test. And the test was really quite interesting to see if I had the, the skills to become uh, a broadcaster. Basically, they said, there's the microphone press the button and turn it on. The moment you stop talking, it's over. And see how long you can go. Pick a topic and rattle on. So I went on rattling on for six or seven minutes and they pressed the button and said, stop. We've never seen anyone do that before. Obviously you have a skill, you can think and talk at the same time. So that I ended up taking a broadcast course for a couple of years and got a certificate, which was worthwhile you know, to hang on the wall and not much else. And I actually recorded on a cassette in those days. They had cassettes. And I put them in an envelope with a stamp and licked the stamp and, and mailed them off to all sorts of radio stations. And nothing ever happened, of course. And about a year later, somebody actually <clears throat> phoned me and said, we're in desperate need of a broadcaster. The guy quit. Um, would you mind jumping on a bus and, and, and coming up here? So I actually got a job in a little dinky station somewhere and started as a radio broadcaster. And from there, I went on to bigger stations and became a news editor and, and, and news reporter and learned how to type. I think I was 40 years old before I learned how to type. And I still type with two fingers. That's which is not, no, it's, it's lousy. <clears throat> I wish I knew how to type. Uh, but that, that's how it got started. Uh, in a station uh, in a small town in British Columbia, uh, I got hired as a news reporter and announcer to do, listen to this, 55 broadcasts a week that's 11 a day and i had to write them all wow and and that broke my procrastination i had been procrastinating for many many years and boy did i learn how to type real fast and to this day um the way i type affects my style because i'm so slow that i edit each sentence as i go i never get to the end of a sentence without fixing it so other writers I know, they just type away and then they come back and they revise it and revise it and revise it. But for me, basically, first take is almost always perfect. Sometimes I come back and, and fix it. But I've talked to editors before about the cleanliness of, of, of my writing. How clean is it? How much work does it need? How much editing? And they all basically say, it's phenomenal. You're about 100%. We do, we do fact checking, spell check. Your, your stuff comes in clean as a whistle. So that's because... I'm a lousy typist. I have to edit <clears throat> as I go because I, I type so slowly. But I can still do 5,000 words a day. So I got started in radio, and the instant I got into radio, I realized there's no future in that business. For instance, the one I listen to in my car uh, on the rare occasion I take my car anywhere is uh, an oldie station. The rest of the stations are just wretched. But I listen to that one, and they just are about to turn into a sports radio station next 
month. So all these guys have been DJs for their whole life. I, what are they going to do in their 50s? They're done. So I realized as soon as I got into radio, there's no security. So I decided to get out of it. Um, I met a, a wonderful woman in a small town who later turned out to be my wife. And we've been married now for 25 years. So I moved to Vancouver, the big city, to be with her. I thought, well, I can always get a job, but I can't always get a wife. So I moved to Vancouver. And the fact that as a small town radio guy, I could do everything was of no interest whatsoever to big station employers. They didn't want a guy who could sell advertising, write copy, uh, spin records, uh, uh, be a reporter, all, all the little things that I had learned. Uh, you had to be a specialist. And I wasn't a specialist in anything. So nobody wanted to hire me. As it turned out in the long run, uh, I actually got hired uh, or offered a gig as a, a morning man, a talk show host. You know, I, I was on a major radio station for about a week before it got sold, and, and I got fired. So they, they went from uh, they went from a news station to all sports or something like that. So no uh, no security in, in in radio. But anyway, so I come to Vancouver, uh, full of uh, glory, wanted to get married and settle down and, and have a family and all that good stuff. And I couldn't get a job anywhere. So um, I said to my wife, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start my own newspaper. And she kindly explained to me that I had no job and that I had no money. As a matter of fact, my car didn't run because I didn't have any insurance. And a car was stuck in, in the carport. And I had no experience in newspapers. And I didn't know how really to type and I would need 20 employees and, and a lot of money and an office and a telephone and all these other things that might be required to actually run a newspaper. And I said, well, no, I, I don't think any of that stuff is really important. What's important is once I make up my mind and I'm decisive, it's a question of willpower. I will make this happen. So I was infatuated at that time with what is now known as street newspapers. Uh, there's still a few around, but back in the 1990s, uh, there wasn't really any. I'd heard of one in New York City. And a street newspaper is where homeless people who beg on the street actually act as newsies, where they sell a newspaper, and that newspaper is actually full of stories about street life. So I'd heard about that, and I thought, well, this is awful to see these people begging on the streets, not just, you know, the proverbial town drunk, but hundreds of people, young people, sleeping on the street, begging for money. And I thought, we ought to talk about this. We ought to have a discussion. We, we need a newspaper. We need media to talk about this horrible crisis. So um, I spent a year talking to anti-poverty activists and social service agencies and everybody else, and not a single person had any interest whatsoever in what I was doing. They all said, I hate those people, those beggars and panhandlers. They're all bugging you for money and smokes and stuff. I want anything to do with this. And besides, who would want to read about this? And I was very adamant that um, this was an important issue that I wanted to do it. And uh, long and short, I, I, I met a photographer who was freelancing, uh, and he knew a reporter at the Globe and Mail who phoned me up and asked me about it. And I said, well, I've actually written the entire newspaper. I've taken all the photos. I've laid it out. I've had it produced. It's sitting there on my computer, and all I need to do is get a little publicity, and I will go public with this thing. So basically, uh, a story appeared in the, the Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper, I believe uh, Eastern Standard Time, three hours earlier than me, it came out, um, I don't know what day of the week it was. It was uh, four in the morning, my time, and I was asleep in bed at the time and the phone rang. And this was a long time ago. It must have been summer because I was in the habit of uh, <clears throat> sleeping in the nude, and I didn't have my glasses on, and it was dark, and the phone rang, and I was very annoyed. And I walked out into the kitchen, and the phone was on the wall, 
And I picked it up and a rather rude voice said, who is this? <laughs> and it was CKWW Windsor, Ontario, because the story was on the front page of the Globe and Mail, and they were the first to call. And they just thought that this was an amazing idea that I would be able to put homeless people back to work by selling newspapers. And I got a story in the Globe and Mail, and so I sit there in the dark in the nude <laughs> with no glasses on talking to this radio station. And I hung up and I went back to say to my wife, you won't believe what just happened. And the phone rang again and again and again. It did not stop ringing for about six months. Um, I was profiled over 500 times in, in media uh, around the world. And it was a very, very uh, controversial and political uh, topic, homelessness, street life. Uh, back in 1992, I was writing about things you simply were not allowed to talk about, and it was not in the, in the, in the newspaper. I interviewed transgender prostitutes about their work life. Uh, I interviewed people who had just been paroled from prison for murdering their best friends. I did all sorts of strange uh, stuff that was very, very hot and controversial. So anyway, my little tiny street newspaper, which I started without a penny in my pocket, became a huge uh, success. And I did that for five years. So when we finally get around to talking about uh, transformative travel, actually that was a very transformative uh, medium. Uh, I changed the, the face of uh, media here in Vancouver. Uh, all of a sudden people started writing about drug addicts and, and shoplifting and, and, and people would phone me all the time and they would write letters saying, thank God people are talking about this. My son overdosed, my daughter's uh, turning tricks. Uh, we need people to talk about these topics. So it was very transformative. And of course it changed my life, of course, because I went from unemployed to being a famous person overnight. And I, I did uh, that paper for five years. And uh, finally, um, I had to stop doing it because of the oddest reason. Usually businesses fail because they're not successful. I had to quit doing my business because it was too successful. Uh, my vendor started off by getting a haircut, uh, cleaning up, uh, getting a room, getting off the street, buying some clothes, and they would get to a level where they were comfortable. And then they were making all this money. You wouldn't believe how successful this publication was. I had one guy told me, part-time standing on the street, he was making $5,000 a month. I could have run for mayor. As a matter of fact, the Downtown Business Association asked me to run for mayor and was going to fund it. <clears throat> they were going to fund it because they said, we really need to talk about these issues. And, and every one of your stories is not about a problem. It's about a solution. Newspapers are full of uh, stories about terrible issues. And they're always passing the buck and say, the government should do something about this. Well, all the stories I wrote about were solutions. This is how they're doing things in in Portland. This is how they're doing it in London. Why, why can't we do it here? These people need detox, rehab, training. Uh, you know, we can't afford to just continue like this. But anyway, um, I had to stop doing it because my vendors ended up dying. They would get drunk, buy around for the bar, uh, do some drugs, and, and then I would get a call from the hospital saying, the only ID on the person here is your business card. Can you come and claim the body? So I started off from zero, ended up back in the same spot where these guys were killing themselves because of all the money they were making because of me. And I said, I can't have this anymore. I mean, it had gotten to the point where it was a successful publication selling advertising and making money, but I pulled the plug entirely on it. So um, from there, I wrote about panhandling for a major newspaper and a feature, and it was on the front page. It was a cover story. And then the editor said to me, that was terrific. Uh, what else have you got? And it hadn't occurred to me that I would write more than one. So I wrote another and another and another. And uh, that particular newspaper came out uh, twice a week. And I ended up the first year doing 54 cover stories for them. 
a phenomenal amount, just about every single cover story I wrote. So that's how I got started in journalism, um, just by the confidence and willpower that I could make things happen when everybody said it's not possible to do this. I said, don't underestimate me. I will do all of these things. And uh, so I did. And then we moved to California, which is a whole different career. Well, thanks for sharing. I mean, uh, I know that story because you've told me we know each other. Uh, for those of people who are listening and watching, they might not know about this area of Vancouver. Vancouver is a, f a fairly affluent city with one of the highest real estate uh, markets in North America. Yet, we actually have the poorest postal code in the entire continent in this area called the downtown east side. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I'm actually from uh, Vancouver, BC, Canada, born and raised. And it actually brings me to tears every time I go through that area. Um, and sometimes you become indifferent and it does doesn't lead you to tears, but when I'm really conscious of it, it definitely moves me at a very uh, emotional, spirit level. And uh, you know, no one's been able to solve the problem. Uh, no mayor, uh, no organization, no NGO, no nonprofit, no church, no religious organization. And it's very, 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 very sad um, to live in an amazing city uh, that has hold the Olympics, the you know, like amazing uh, expo, etc. Yet we have this problem that hasn't been fixed. And good on you for uh, doing your part. I mean, uh, what you did is actually help homeless people become entrepreneurs. And uh, I think uh, you, you gave them uh, purpose and meaning and significance. You helped them earn uh, dignity and income. So I'm really proud of you for that. And I uh, just want to acknowledge that uh, live on the air today. Well, actually, um, as we all know, it's not just Vancouver. Vancouver is very prominent because it's a rich city, a tremendous amount of money pouring in here and an awful lot of uh, homeless people. And these days, of course, thanks to uh, new drugs like fentanyl, carfentanyl, um, very powerful opiates, people are overdosing left, right, and center. But uh, it's not just Vancouver. My wife subscribes to a number of magazines. I was reading The New Yorker recently, <clears throat> and they have an opioid crisis happening all over uh, the United States, especially in the eastern parts, the rust belts, the the, the South, uh, all sorts of places where you would never expect there to be heroin or opioids. Uh, a lot of this is Donald Trump uh, country. These people uh, you know, who voted for Trump, they've been out of work for 20, 30 years now. And uh, there's this huge sense of hopelessness and, and um, lack, of, of, uh, lack of hope, I guess. And, and uh, Vermont and all sorts of places you would never expect white, middle class, ordinary people to be doing um, these drugs, and, and it's not just Vancouver where people are dying in droves, it's, it's all over uh, North America, and, and I think the, the problem, of course, is these people have had very little hope uh, for a future for quite some time. It's the same as being homeless. You know, they don't care if they live or die, and, and it's shocking to see uh, this type of thing happening all around the world. Um, you know, people, when they have no uh, aspirations for a better life, they, they turn to drugs. So, um, you know, part of what I write about, a lot of what I write about, is how you personally can make the world a better place, how you can transform the world, how you can transform your life if you know how to do it. So we're getting closer all the time to talking about transformation. <laughs> uh, I mean, in a way, we've all recovered it. I mean, uh, the fact that you done all this work on his side in one of the poorest neighborhoods in the world is transformative travel. So we have already covered it, but uh, uh, we can cover the whole area of, uh, from uh, transforming your local community, which you have and you continue to do, to transforming the world through our travels. So tell us more about how uh, we as travelers uh, can transform the world. And uh, maybe walk us through the term itself because 
it's not a, a very used term. I, I think you actually coined the term yourself. So uh, walk us through what it means to be a transformative traveler and then maybe some examples too. Okay, um, I'm not sure if I coined the word. I've been using it for about 20 years now and it's just suddenly come into, um, into use as common public, common public usage. I actually saw an article uh, the other day in Vogue magazine, which is a trendy fashion magazine all about trends. And in the March issue, they had a cover story about transformative travel. And the article said, 2016 was the year of experiential travel. 2017 is going to be all about transformative travel. And they defined uh, transformative uh, in a lot of terms like personal growth. If you're interested in growing as a person and getting deeper into your experience, <clears throat> you should learn about transformative travel. Well, hang on, stop, what, you know, move back. Uh, I heard the exper expression experiential travel years ago. I got an invitation once to a conference in Bermuda. It was a Caribbean tourism delegates, about 300 of them. And why I got invited, I don't know. I had an extra seat, a free ticket. So I went to Bermuda and I listened to this conference and it was about experiential uh, travel. The, the keynote speaker was teaching all of these delegates about experiential travel. And the way it works, well, when a person comes to a resort or goes on holiday, usually, you know, they have a budget that's going to cost them two grand for the vacation. And, uh, you know, they, they put in a little room there for souvenirs. So they're going to buy a T-shirt or they're going to go to the marketplace and buy a, a gourd or, or something to remind themselves that they've just been to Jamaica or whatever. So what resorts try to do is to stop you from going into town. They invite vendors to come to the resort and sell their trinkets there, or they try to get you to you know, buy some stuff and make an extra 50 bucks. And over the course of time, a lot of them have learned that they can get much more money out of their victim, pardon my language, their client, their guest, if they give them an experience. <clears throat> so they'll put together a package, you'll see it in the lobby, a big sign, you know, placard saying, uh, fishing tours. Um, there's a lot of different examples, but I'll give you one. <clears throat> you can go out for the day with Jorge on his boat, and you can catch a fish. Instead of coming home, back to the hotel, you go to Jorge's house and you get to meet his wife and you get to meet the kids and they have a barbecue and she shares with you the magic sauce that she has had in the family for centuries. And if, if the resort's really smart, they'll even shoot video of the whole thing. So <clears throat> they end up taking 500 bucks out of your pocket for this wonderful experience. And you go back home and tell your friends, wow, did I have a great time? I've got to meet some local people and look, I have video of it and all that kind of stuff. So experiential travel is a way of upselling the guest to get more money out of his pocket. The keynote speaker at that conference in Bermuda happened to be from Vancouver. And I met with her a couple of weeks later and I talked to her and said, Judy, um, let me tell you something what I call transformative travel. Instead of all this money going to the resort, wouldn't it be nice if that money went to Jorge and his family? Or better yet, the, the community in which he lives and the school where his, his kids go. So instead of the multi-million dollar resort making the money, how about his community doing that? So I said, I've been to all sorts of schools and jails and hospitals and orphanages on my trips. That's why I go to these places. Sure, I get to stay at the five-star hotel, but the first thing I do is make a beeline to the barrio or the ghetto or where real life is going on. So yeah, I'm not sleeping rough anymore like when I was a kid. I'm not sleeping in the fields. Uh, I'm sleeping in a nice bed, but the reason I went there wasn't so that I could enjoy an all-inclusive resort. I went there so that I get a chance to meet with ordinary people. So the transformation comes in when you can find a way to have that 500 bucks go to the family 
or that money can go to the community uh, where that family lives. So that's basically what I call transformation. And I guess the next thing to do is to explain how I got started doing that. That was yeah, quite a, quite a long ahead. time ago. Okay. Well, um, I say I started in Asia. Um, when I had some friends over there who were doing this type of work already, and, and I was very curious as to find out, you know, how it worked and, and what they did and where they did it and why they did it, and basically, you know, the how of it. So uh, I went and followed in the footsteps of some of my friends who were doing this type of thing. Um, I read, for instance, about a gentleman named Bernie Krischer. He used to be a journalist. Uh, I guess when I met him, he was in his late 80s. And he was formerly a uh, bureau chief for Newsweek. He went over to Asia to cover the Vietnam War in the 60s. And he never left. Stayed over in Asia. And he was an elderly Jewish gentleman uh, living in Tokyo. And he said, you know, America was illegally in Cambodia. We carpet bombed it. Bombs are still going off to this day, blowing people's legs off. We owe these people a huge amount. We need to, to pay them back for the damage we've done to that country. So he started building schools. And when I met him and interviewed him, I said, well, you know, how many, how many schools have you built? And at that time, about 10 years ago, he had built over 500 schools. I just couldn't believe that any one human being could do that. And he did basically described to me, you know, how he did it. And he said, well, you know, that's um, movie, The Godfather. What's that famous line? I don't take no for an answer. He didn't take no for an answer. He just kept after people until they agreed to give him the money. So it was like $15,000 to build a school. And the trick was you got to put your name on it. So he said, if you want to do this kind of thing in um, Canada, go talk to a Rotary Club. They're always doing all sorts of international work. They're putting money into polio or um, all sorts of things. A big theme for Rotary at that time was literacy. So actually, when I came back to Canada, I joined a Rotary Club. And that turned out to be not the, the right thing for me. I'm not really the kind of person who likes to go to a meeting once a week and, and have a big uh, you know, plate of pork chops and, and, and talk to other people how we could possibly raise any money. I was a Rotarian for a year, and I think we spent far more money having pork chops than we did raising any money for the causes that we were doing. Uh, but it was basically a bunch of old fellas that wanted to socialize together and, and, and to try to do good things. But I said to these guys, look, you know, I've been doing work in, in Nepal and in India, in Cambodia, uh, raising money for all sorts of things like orphanages. I mean, it's in my books. You can read about them. I basically uh, emptied the, the, the women's prison in Kathmandu by starting a cosmetology program and getting all of these women jobs. Uh, that's, uh, I won an award for that story. It was called This is Not a Tourist Destination. That's what the warden of the prison said when he tried to throw me out. He said, don't you ever come back here and bring people. This is not a tourist destination. Until I explained to him that I could actually empty his prison because he had no budget to feed anybody. I got all the women in that prison uh, paroled because I got them all jobs. I mean, it's a complicated story, but uh, whether it's prisons, orphanages, hospitals, uh, whatever, schools especially, you know, it's great to work with little kids when you, when, when you go to these places. So when I came back to Canada, I told these guys what I've been doing. They said, uh, well, why don't you do something like that here in Canada? And I said, you, you got to be joking. You haven't seen the poverty, the horror that I've seen in India and places like that. People are starving to death. They're dying. Um, Stungmunche is, is, is a village in, the, in the Phnom Penh. It's actually 7,000 acres of, of garbage. It's a garbage dump. People live in it. 
They eat the garbage off the back of the truck. They make their houses out of garbage. There's thousands of children in there. Life expectancy is 20 years. Kids are born and in, 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 in brought up in, in an atmosphere where there's dioxins floating through the air all the time. Uh, the Center for Children's Happiness has rescued 400 of these kids. It only costs $2 a day to put a child in there. So I, you know, that's in my movie, Adventures in Cambodia, how you can make a huge difference in the lives of the people you meet if, if you know how. So anyway, the governor, original governor for Rotary met me. He's in charge of 50 clubs. And he said, Mike, uh, I understand you're going to quit Rotary because you're bored with it. It's not your style. I mean, you want to do something much bigger. And I said, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm raising uh, $5,000, uh, 50 guys spending a year raising 5,000 bucks, this is a joke. You know, I, I'd like to help all 50 clubs. I'd like to have a, help 100 clubs. So he told me about an idea that they had about bringing books to what we call in Canada First Nations Reserves, Natives. Uh, they've been called Aboriginal the last few years. Next, next phrase is Indigenous. And I didn't even know that many of these reserves and villages even existed because they're too small to be on the map. And I checked and checked and checked as a journalist and I couldn't find out any of them. So I finally contacted a senior journalist. He said, they aren't on any maps. The government doesn't even condescend to put these people on the map. But when you go there, you'll find there's a school or you'll find there's a band office and maybe a store or a gas station. They're real little villages, but there's hundreds of them just in British Columbia alone. So I finally wangled a trip with a professor from the university who was acting as a consultant to one small community. And I went there and I could not believe in Canada that people could possibly be living like that. These houses were decrepit, no electricity, no running water, full of mold, uh, people dying, everybody on drugs and alcohol. I mean, it's just, it was worse than Cambodia. So um, I decided to, to do something about it. So the regional governor at that time happened to be a driver or, or an aide-de-camp to the lieutenant governor, the official dignitary of the province of British Columbia and representing the crown. And this gentleman was an Aboriginal uh, judge, Stephen Point, and he was delivering books to some of these reserves that he got to go and, and, and talk to. And he was trying to tell the kids, get an education, go to school, stop doing drugs, uh, you need a future. So when I met with him, I said, I want to go with you to some of uh, these places. And we need a name for this project. I, I named it myself. It used to be the Aboriginal, the Lieutenant Governor's Aboriginal Literacy Project and Initiative. And I said, that's a mouthful. Uh, we're going to call this Right to Read. So I went with him and took video of various visits. And, and I went to a place that uh, offered to give us a trailer, an old modular trailer that they weren't using. And I made a video of that. And they were so pleased that they donated another one and another one and another one. We got 14 trailers donated and built 14 libraries in some of the most remote, poverty-stricken parts of British Columbia. And since then, it's taken off like wildfire. I just finished making a movie about it uh, where um, Optic TV paid me a grant to to travel these places and make a travelogue about it. So basically, I'm now showing Canadians that we have utter destitution in our own midst. Sometimes even within an hour of Vancouver, if you know where to go, you drive into the bush and you'll find these people starving. Uh, one small uh, community I went to, they had a store. You know, they saved up enough money to go into the big city and buy food and bring it back to the reserve to add to the fish and game that they were hunting and living off of. But their store burned down. And they didn't tell anybody. And it was only by accident that the Rotary Club found out that these people, several hundred people, were starving to death within an hour's drive of Vancouver. 
So, you know, we have poverty in our um, own midst, only we either don't want to look at it, like on, in Vancouver on the streets and seeing these homeless people, or we don't know about it. So basically, you know, over the last um, 10 years, I've picked up all these techniques of raising money, uh, using media, which started off uh, as stories, and then I started taking photographs, and then I started shooting video, then I learned how to make uh, video clips, and now I'm making full-length movies and showing them to people who can't believe what they're seeing. And I tell them, come with me to experience one of these transformative journeys, and it will knock your socks off to be there at the school when, the, when you bring the school supplies or the medical supplies to the school. And, and there's nothing like having 15 kids jump all over you and give you hugs and kisses because they don't have any shoes, they don't have any lunch money, they don't have any food. And you come in there and you can transform an entire school or community with as much as a laptop or a camera. All you need as a digital nomad is a camera and a keyboard or a computer. Doesn't matter where you are, you can connect people through like we're talking now, you know, through technology, you, you connect people who are long ways apart and um, bring them together on a common subject. So we're having a little technology breakdown here. I think right now the audio is, is, is gone off. So anyway, uh, Ricky is still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. keep going. Um, you know, I'd love for you to talk about how uh, individuals who are traveling can also uh, use transformative travel when we travel. I mean, uh, uh, a lot of digital nomads, we travel, but we're busy working, we're on our computers, uh, but we're not giving back and impacting communities enough. Okay, well, the best thing to do, I mean, as a writer, I tell stories. So instead of teaching people, uh, you know, memorize this and, and, and learn from me, I just tell stories and say, look what I did, and you can do the same thing. So one day here in Vancouver, I get an email from a PR company said, would you like to go to the Dominican Republic? I didn't even know where I was. <laughs> I said, what's in the Caribbean somewhere? I got one day's notice. And uh, obviously somebody had canceled and they had a spot to fill. You know, maybe the New York Times decided who wants to go to the Dominican Republic. But uh, I said yes. So I had like one day to prepare to jump on the plane. And I didn't have any money whatsoever at the time. I borrowed $20 US from my wife, $20 bill. And the only money I think I spent was uh, $6 for a hamburger at McDonald's along the way. And I flew to uh, Los Angeles and then to New York and down to the Caribbean uh, and uh, landed in the Dominican Republic. So the assignment was basically uh, about all inclusive resorts on the North Shore of the Dominican. Something that is like very, very at the bottom of my wish list. I have no interest in going to all inclusive resorts. This particular one, I think it was a a slugfest between the Germans and the British to see who could get drunk the most. Uh, that's what all-inclusive means to a lot of people. You know, the beer is included, you know. So we stayed in this five-star hotel, and I don't think, I think the president of the country showed up, and we had helicopter tours and champagne and lobster and all that kind of stuff. But before going, I did my homework. So one of the things I do uh, for emergencies like this is once a year, I'll go to a rummage ship. And I go to the rummage sale and I'll buy all sorts of baseball caps and t-shirts as long as they have English written on them. You have a cap that says, you know, Fred's Plumbing and Engineering, whatever. As long as it's in English. Same thing with the t-shirt. It doesn't matter what it says. Matter of fact, when I go to the rummage sale, people will sometimes give these things uh, to me when they find out what I'm using them for. They don't weigh anything. You can stick them in your overnight bag. Uh, they don't cost anything, but they are a huge treat to people on the other end. So what I did was I found my hotel on Google Maps and Google Earth and Google Streetscape. You can find anything on Google these days. 
So then you go up in the sky, you zero in on the hotel, you go up a thousand meters, and then you start looking around, and then you come down into streetscape, and you go around, and I found it what I was looking for. I found the hostel that uh, was a backpackers-type hostel, and I went on the website, and I found out that the proprietor, the owner, was a French-Canadian nurse, and she was encouraging backpackers to come and volunteer at the Bate. Now, the barrio is where the really poor Dominicans live. Behind the Bate, or behind the, the barrio, the ghetto was even worse place called the Bate, where the Haitian refugees from Haiti squatted in the dirt. Now, because she was French and the Haitians speak French, she was able to act as an interpreter. So I emailed her and said, I'm going to be in your neighborhood a few miles up the road at the Five Star Resort. It would be wonderful if I could meet with you and come to the Bate and go meet uh, the school principal and talk to the kids. So she wasn't allowed on the grounds of the five-star hotel. She pulled up in her old battered truck. I walked a mile to the road, got in the truck, drove to her place, went to the school, met the school principal, and made a speech to the kids. And what I always say to kids is, do your homework, stay in school, listen to your teacher. One day, if you're successful, and you will be if you get an education, you'll be like me. You'll be able to escape your poverty. You'll be able to go to the big city. You might even be able to go to Canada like I've come here. And the kids were looking at me like I was some sort of extraterrestrial, some Martian who dropped out of the sky. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? And I showed them the caps and the t-shirts and I gave them all to the teacher. I empowered the teacher. If you give them directly to the kids, like candy and pens, you teach them to drop out of school. You teach them that, you know, that they don't have to pay attention. But if you give the power to the teacher, even if it was like a dozen uh, baseball caps, Fred's engineering and plumbing, doesn't make any difference. So I have photos of all these people, all these kids in the, in the Dominican Republic walking around, proud as punch with these caps and t-shirts. So basically, that's how you do it. You go on Google and say, well, where am I going? What's within the, the, the travel distance of, of the place? So I'm getting a free ride to the five-star hotel, but I've done this in, in every country that I've ever been to, Extend your trip. You're only there for four days, but you say, well, I don't want to fly back immediately. You know, I want to stay there for another week. And like I say, orphanages, uh, prisons. I think I am the only journalist I know I am, the only journalist in history to have actually snuck into San Quentin Prison in California. I did it twice. And I was so happy to escape each time I got in, I got out again. And my wife said, you are literally insane. You know, but I got into San Quentin Prison. And I actually smuggled in a camera because I was on a film crew where I volunteered to be a gaffer, you know, a guy carried the equipment. And I actually had my own camera around my neck and took photos inside San Quentin. And I wrote a cover story about it for a magazine. And it was all about rehabilitation versus punishment. And you can see that, you know, me standing in the yard at San Quentin and right behind me is death row where an execution was about to take place. And they really believe in punishment in the United States. And I was really keen on pushing the fact that these guys need rehab. They need anger management. They need, they need literacy. When you let them out, they got to learn not to beat up their wife. That's how they got put in jail in the first place. So um, I go to, shall we say, very strange destinations where most people normally wouldn't go. But the sense of gratification that you get when you deliver a library to a remote community that's never seen the internet, that's never seen a computer, these people are so grateful. And the people that I bring with me who have the money to donate you know, you stand in there and people, are, tears are running down their cheeks. You've got little kids that don't even have any money for lunch. 
and all of a sudden you're changing and transforming that entire community. There's no feeling like it. Amazing, amazing. Uh, so to end off with Michael, uh, tell us about um, you know uh, what we can do uh, to make a difference while we're traveling, like uh, in the hotels, in the restaurants, in the shops, in the buses, the trains, the planes. Is there anything we can do to impact uh, people that we're meeting on a one-on-one -on -one basis? Well, you know, as a journalist, there's the five W's, who, what, where, when, and why. But you discover over the course of time as a journalist that the most important aspect of any story is not the five W's. It's actually the, the six, which is how. So, you know, who you're going to help, what you're going to do, why you're going to do it. You learn all that. And basically what you need to do is come to my website or take one of my courses or read what I've written to show how simple it is, you know, to do this stuff. But the how is the really... Uh, all important because you can make a major disaster out of anything from wishful thinking or thinking that you're doing a good thing. For instance, in Nepal one time, uh, I was able to deliver medicine to some of the most obscure villages in the world, uh, paying for it, uh, buying the medicine through a doctor in Kathmandu, renting the horse, uh, getting it shipped and delivered. But we had to make very sure that the people who received the medicine knew what to do with it. You know, it's the how that's important. Because he told me, look, you know, you're not the first person to try this. There was a couple of American guys who walked in and delivered on horseback a whole bunch of medicine to these obscure villages. And, you know, they didn't do their homework because within a day it was on the black market. The chief started selling the stuff for, for money. And people bought the stuff and they ate it all and they died. So they killed the two guys that brought it in, you know. So, whoops. Made a huge mistake there, didn't you? And a lot of people make uh, a lot of uh, you know mistakes when they think they're doing it right. So you got to think about the how. And and I'll simplify it as much as I possibly can. Try this one. Depending on how much money you have or how poor you are, say it's twenty dollar bill or even a hundred dollar bill. Take a hundred dollar bill, American. Canadian money is not very much good in a lot of countries around the world. Make it an Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam works in Cambodia or whatever. So you get a hundred dollar bill. Take it out of your wallet and put it in your breast pocket or put it in your pants pocket. It's got to be in a fragile place. It's not safe in your wallet. You know, it's not in the safe. It's, it's there and it's burning a hole in your pocket, a proverbial burning a hole in your pocket. So there it is in your breast pocket. you got a $100 bill. Okay, so you land at the hotel somewhere and your choice is who do I give that money to and why? Well, it's simple just to leave it on the pillow for the chambermaid, right? She's working for less than minimum wage, has six kids and, you know, she's, you know, poor. Well, that's cheating. That's the first person you met. So as you go through the entire week or two weeks of your trip, you're paying attention and saying, how would I spend that $100? For instance, in Pakistan, you buy a sewing machine for a woman, you might as well have killed her. Because when her husband comes home in an Islamic country and finds that a white stranger has given his wife a sewing machine, he'll beat the shit out of her. So you've got to do your homework about the culture of different places. So you have the $100, and you're going to feel great when you give it to a school kid or somebody like that. But you have to ask yourself, uh, is this the right thing to do? So once again, you got to do your homework, and uh, you have to talk to people like me and take a course to find out uh, what is the best way of helping somebody and transforming uh, the place where you're going. I mean, the worst thing you can do, as far as I'm concerned, is give somebody begging on the street money because they are going to go buy drugs with it. And these days, fentanyl can kill you in 30 seconds. So do you want to be responsible for the person, being the person who's, who's you know, killed someone because you didn't really know what you're doing? So learning how to do this 
uh, is not that difficult. And doing it itself when you're on the trips is not that difficult. But just doing it blindly, by, like, you know, I went on a trek across the Himalayas with a Tibetan Lama. And when we got to this magical place, 700 kilometers by foot, uh, you know, the center of the Buddhist universe, he actually had a bag of candies with him. And they had wrappers. So he gave all these candies out to the kids who took the wrappers off and threw them into the wind. And when he wasn't looking, I ran around and picked up all the wrappers. I mean, garbage in paradise. And he saw me doing it and he was really embarrassed. What a big mistake. You don't give candies to kids on your journeys. But, you know, he didn't know any better. He thought he was being nice and the kids loved it. So anyway, it's the how do you do it. It can be really simple. And, of course, the simplest thing to do is to go on to transformativetravel.ca, <laughs> which I'm building right now. Uh, maybe by the time this is broadcast, it'll be finished. It's a big project. Uh, but there's movies on there and there's instructions and video clips and hopefully, you know, people can learn to, to do what I'm doing. Because to wrap up, to finalize, transformative travel is at the top end of your list of life experiences. Let's, let's compare it to food. Like a cheeseburger is number one. You know, and the filet mignon is number 10. Uh, you work your way up from when I was a one going to Hawaii, going to the beach because I didn't know any better, to a five where, you know, you try to help people. And then you eventually get up to a point where you can make a very profound difference in the lives of people because basically it changes you as a person. You're the person that you're guaranteed to transform. And if you do it right, maybe you can transform the people that you visit as well. Awesome. Well, Said, my friend, uh, super inspiring uh, about all of your uh, transformative uh, travel journeys, but also even the tips about uh, you know having some money in your pocket and having it burning a hole in your heart and in your pocket, uh, waiting to give it to someone. So I'm uh, definitely going to try that uh, tip out. Um, and uh, you know, thanks uh, for sharing today. Uh, once again, uh, to wrap up, uh, if people wanted to connect with you on your website, uh, YouTube, social media, how can they do that, uh, Michael? Well, it's your basic www and uh, transformative. If you spell it slowly, it's transformative. But I put a dash in there, transformative dash travel, because if you put the two words together, it's too many syllables. So it's transformative dash travel dot ca, and that stands for Canada, not California. <laughs> uh, so there you go, uh, and I'll have the link in the show notes. If you're watching this on YouTube, it'll be in the YouTube uh, description. So thanks everyone for tuning into this episode. Uh, thanks Michael for your time today. Happy travels, and we'll catch you in the next episode of. Digital Nomad Mastery, where we teach you how to make money while traveling the world.